I think we've all seen or heard of working dogs in some capacity or another, either alongside police officers, at airports, in war zones, or portrayed doing some other extreme jobs in movies. But I was shocked and frankly emotionally devastated to find out that these animals dedicating their lives to a mission are often abandoned when their service is complete. Welcome to the Just Dumb Enough podcast, a show that acknowledges no one is always an expert by dispelling misconceptions with real experts. I'm your host as always, Colton Petrie. My guest today is Bob Bryant. Bob is a co-founder of Mission Canine. Over a decade ago, Bob found himself working to create a path forward for military and contract dogs. Many of these animals otherwise have nowhere to go, no family to take them in, not even a way out of a cage in the middle of a battlefield. Today, you'll get to learn about the different kinds of service jobs that these pups can get into, the hard lives they live, and a way we can all help to change things for the better. This episode does contain some pretty upsetting information about how some of these dogs are treated, but... I really believe it's important to hear, and Mission Canine is actively trying to write happier endings for all of these puppers. I just don't want anyone out there with a particularly soft spot for animals to be caught off guard and left distressed because I failed to give a content warning up front. And just one last thing before we get into the show, we've officially made it back to the number one spot for education shows on Podbean. It's an absolutely massive achievement, and neither me or the show would be where we are without each and every one of you out there. I tear up ever so slightly just thinking about any of you taking the time to listen to this thing I love making. Thank you. From the bottom of my heart, thank you so much. It means more than you could ever know. Anyway... Let's figure out a better canine retirement. Welcome to the show, Bob Bryant. Thank you, Colton. I appreciate the opportunity to be on and speak with you and your audience today. Yes, I am so excited to have you on. Why don't you give a little introduction of who you are to the people? Uh, I'm the king of nothing. Uh, That that, and I'm also the co-founder of Mission Canine Rescue. We're a 501c3 nonprofit here in the United States. Our mission is we bring working dogs home from all over the world after their service. Uh, This includes military working dogs, contract working dogs, which are owned by private companies, uh, TSA, Customs and Border Protection, and various police departments here within the, within the United States. My specific function, uh, we're a team of three founders. Uh, Kristen Maurer is our president. Louisa Kastner is our vice president. They do the bulk load of the work, the hauling of the dogs, uh, getting them here and there. I'm basically tasked with making sure that we're well-funded and can afford to do what we do and spend our money wisely when we receive it. 
that's me. Yeah, awesome. And how long ago did you start working with working dogs? Uh, I had, I would have never thought I would have touched a working dog. Uh, I met Kristen back in 2010 when she was working with another organization that was doing the same thing. This is in the incept when military dogs could actually be brought home before this time. Most were euthanized. And uh, they didn't want to ever see that happen again. So a law was passed in 2009 called Robbie's Law that made a path available for the adoption of dogs that didn't go with their handlers. Kristen was with a predecessor of our group. Um, I'd approach them on a business mindset. Uh, my main income producing activity is credit card processing. I provide merchant accounts for companies, uh, especially those that take government uh, credit cards, if you have the right level detection screening, you can save, well, 20 to 30% just by categorizing the cards right. And a lot of people don't do that. But I brought an offer to them where I'd share revenue if I could promote my services. They agreed. And I basically fell in love with what they did. And when the then executive director of that organization decided that there was too much month at the end of the money and she needed to get a real job, uh, she kind of left him high and dry. And Kristen reached out to me and asked if I would help them continue their work under a new organization, and I agreed to do so. That was back in 2012, and here we are 10 years later, doing, doing real well. We do nearly $2 million a year worth of work, and we brought close to, at this point, I would say almost 1,300 dogs home, and we've reunited close to 650 with former handlers that they worked alongside of. Yeah, and that's very important work. It seems really interesting that, you know, I would have thought like, oh, all dogs kind of go with their handlers unless there's some kind of incident. Is that not necessarily the case? No, in the case of the military, uh, I'll speak about them specifically, then we can cover the other, the other uh, branches that handle dogs. A military dog can have as many as five handlers during its working life. I've seen a military working dog that was 13 before it was retired. Uh, live six months, you know, great retirement there. Um, most of them are retired between nine and 10 years old. And now they do mostly go with their handlers. Uh, they will, the first one has, generally the handler that's handling the dog when the dog retires will have the choice to retire with the dog, then it will go to the first handler and then the second. There's a number of reasons why a handler might choose not to adopt his dog. And let's say the dog is a patrol dog, it's very aggressive, and there's young children in the house. It's just not a good fit. So uh, we do see a lot of that. But the main reason why military dogs weren't sent with their handlers in the past was due to the cost involved. If a dog is retired in, let's say, over on the island of Guam, uh, we brought several home from Guam, it's a $7,000 ticket for that dog home, and nobody's going to fly the dog for free. The military doesn't stick the dog on a plane. I don't know many corporals that have $7,000 sitting around to bring a dog home. So as a result, most dogs would sit in kennels and 
while the military dogs get excellent veterinary care, they're still kenneled too long when they're retired and they can develop conditions related to PTSD and, and other things. So that was the that was the thing that kept them from bringing them home. With uh, contract working dogs, they often work alongside foreign nationals as their handlers. And then when the dogs are retired, they don't stay in country. They will, a lot of times if a contractor runs out of money, the dogs are the first to suffer. They won't get adequate food. They'll be kenneled. They won't get exercise. We've received dogs that should weigh 70 pounds that came in at 35 pounds. And uh, it, it's just sad at the lack of care. Uh, we hope that the public cares enough about it that they will petition the government to require that anyone working dogs internationally or nationally have verified secured funding and tickets home and adequate veterinary care for those dogs or don't take them. Uh, we've seen too many horror stories over the last 10 years to want to want to deal with that. Um, TSA, uh, their dogs normally go to them, to the handlers that we don't see too many of them uh, come in. Border Patrol, again, depends on the nature of the dog. And we're seeing way too many police departments in the United States basically just dumping their canines when they're done with them, uh, especially if the dog has a problem. I get, I would say, an average of three to five emails a week with departments wanting to surrender their dogs to us simply because they are now a liability because they're retired and they want them to be somebody else's problem. I really wish they would rethink their service given and provide them the same dignity in retirement that they do a fellow law enforcement officer. I get, I get emails from officers that say, oh, my dog's kind of aggressive and I've got a little kid in the house. You know, you take him or I'll have to put him down. Well, you know, who does that? So I find uh, I've been very discomforted at the lack of care I see in the police canine community. Now, that's certainly not representative of all, but it's representative of some that I've witnessed directly. Yeah, and that seems, I mean, almost insane to me that we have these canines and we consider them to be doing critical jobs, you know, in whatever it is we're doing, but we don't have you know, an actual retirement plan for these working dogs. It's unfortunately, it's because for years they've been considered assets rather than personnel. And there's a shift toward that, uh, toward the changing of that. I hope we see that soon. In fact, the best day of my life will be the day that Mission Canine is not needed anymore. When every dog gets to go home, when every dog has good vet care, when they have a loving adopter, if they don't have a handler, and they always they always get what they need. But unfortunately, I think that's going to be past my lifespan. Yeah, I mean, that's heartbreaking to hear. Is there like something coming through in a law that is trying to help, you know, get some kind of retirement plan put forward? Is there anyone working on that? No, uh, there are several people that have petition Congress for this and that, but it falls on deaf ears or the organization has an ulterior motive, which is not particularly ethical. And it's still, it doesn't get any wings. So it doesn't, uh, doesn't go anywhere. Okay. Is there, 
usually one group of canines that has a harder time adjusting to retirement, like the contract dogs or the canines for law enforcement? Any dog that's had patrol training is going to be harder to reintegrate. That includes Army, I mean, military contract dogs. If the dog is bite trained, there's going to be issues. Uh, we have very specific criteria for which we will adopt bite trained dogs. We don't just, if I hear I want a dog to protect me, guess who doesn't get a bite trained dog? You have a lawsuit waiting to happen in death sentence for the dog. And people don't understand, while a 10-year-old Belgian Malinois may still be able to effectively protect his age is a precursor to that activity and not well and not good or be best inclined to do so. Yeah. And what are the other kind of trainings? You know, we've, we've talked a little bit about patrol training. Um, narcotics. Uh, explosives, cash, believe it or not. Uh, we've had dogs that work prisons and they find cash. Uh, we find, have dogs that sniff out electronics, can find cell phones. Uh, one of the most unusual uh, working dog uh, missions that I found in just the last two years, didn't know they existed, citrus pest detection dogs. These dogs run in orchards and they will alert on diseased fruit trees. Take out the tree, save the orchard. Wow, very they're all, interesting. They're all, all over Florida, all over California, any place that there's active orchards. Uh, what do you think the smallest working dog is? Breed. Oh man, I wouldn't think they'd get smaller than like a bloodhound of some sort. <laughs> Thanks for playing. Jack Russell Terrier. Where does little baby Jack Russell Terrier do his business? It would obviously be some place that has lots of tight confines and twists and turns. Where might that be? Yeah, it's got to be somewhere really small if you need a Jack Russell Terrier. To mm -hmm. um, some kind of a tunnel system, maybe underground? Okay. Well, you're, you're real close. We're going to give you a B-plus on the guess. The answer is a United States submarine. They are uh, drug detection dogs that will go and search for dope in the subs, and they can get places where the bigger dogs can't. Uh, the, the most common working dogs we see these days are, number one, the Belgian Malinois. We call them fur missiles. Uh, they're the Velociraptor of the German Shepherd family. They're hard-hitting, they're fast, they're borderline insane, and they will eat your house if you leave them alone and don't stimulate them. German Shepherd still comes in a close second. Um, all the breeds, there's Dutch Shepherds, German Shepherds, Jay and other ones, all sorts of crosses. Then we see Labrador Retrievers used a lot for explosives and drugs not for patrol i've only seen one bite train one bite train lab and he was an oddity for sure we also see a lot of springer spaniels and german short-haired pointers used by tsa why do you think us uh, tsa uses those two breeds and not german shepherds and belgian malinois to search for drugs at the airport i would have to think it is their appearance 
Like if you see ding, 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 ding. Oh, hey, I got one. They're not scary looking. They want to pet the dog instead. So yeah, they use it strictly because they have a little bit better reception than the shepherds or the Malinois. Oh, very interesting. Is it hard to get these dogs to stop working when they're retired? Yes, it is. I have a bicolor German shepherd that was trained in um, Czechoslovakia. He speaks French and German, believe it or not, because he worked in the city of Longueuil, Canada, which is uh, inside the Montreal, Quebec area. It's about three hours from Burlington, Vermont. He was retired early when a situation came up, and in Canada, they uh, don't adopt out by trained dogs. They euthanize them. And uh, they wanted us, they wanted uh, him to not suffer that fate, so I adopted him. And you're asking if they continue to work. That crazy dog has found me crack pipes, he's found me crystal meth, he's found loads of marijuana under bushes. He also has a, a passion for tennis balls. He's found over 400 in the three years I've had him just out. And he can find one with a ball in his mouth, sniff out the other one, he will drop it and take the new one, and he'll never touch the old one again. I make, I make regu- regular visits to the tennis courts just to return all the balls that he's stolen that were knocked outside. Because there's no negotiating with a terrorist. You can't get it back from him. <laughs> so no, they, they, they don't lose their drive. I had, a, I had a great Labrador retriever named Oreo. He was a military working dog, he served in Iraq. And he was a bomb dog. And he would, I would hide firecrackers and bullets just so he'd have something to do. And he learned how to find lacrosse balls. He found over 300 in his career finding lacrosse balls out here. So, so no, they really, they need a job. That's why we, we have to have adopters for, for the dogs that are going to stimulate them, are going to be around, are going to make them part of their lives and not just stick them in a yard and forget about them. They really need to work. Yeah, absolutely. I was kind of picturing, you know, one of these dogs like in the house and you're you're sitting down for the weekend or something and uh it just brings up your wallet and you're like oh i forgot i have the money kind of working dog <laughs> yeah they can do that i, I shoot I, I know i'd actually like to have one of those yeah. take him for a little walk around the park say hey, find it boy find it i know some guy trained crows to trade uh dollar bills for corn so i mean surely it can't be that hard right Right. Yeah. You're like, the dog's already got the training. All I have to do is keep working the dog. Right. Imprint the new scent. And it's not that difficult. You can teach an old dog new tricks, just in case you were wondering. Well, and I have to imagine these are exceptionally smart dogs because they've gone through a lot of training. Amazingly smart. Uh, One of our uh, military uh, veterans that we reunited... um, a working dog with taught his dog to sniff out elk antlers and he, they would go search up in Idaho where he lives and find these antler sheds and the, those things are worth hundreds of dollars a piece so military working dog Icar really paid his way in retirement second career basically yeah and I guess that's kind of the the dog's preferred lifestyle like they don't want the same kind of retirement we do on a sandy beach you know, relaxing. No, they, they want to stay busy. 
Okay. And we had kind of touched on it earlier, you know, some of these dogs through career or just through neglect post-career, you know, can develop like a stress or an anxiety disorder or even PTSD. Is that pretty Correct. accurate? Uh, yes, we see PTSD frequently in uh, dogs that have been around gunfire and explosives, um, not so much the drug dogs or contract working dogs that have been mishandled by their handlers. Unfortunately, with some of the contractors that bring our dogs overseas and have foreign nationals work them, they will choke the dogs. They will beat the dogs. And I had a Malinois that was beaten by foreign contractors. He wouldn't get near me. Uh, he, he barely tolerated me the four years he lived with us. Uh, he bonded like a tick to my wife. But he, men, he didn't want anything to do with them because of the cruelty that he'd experienced. And why did they do that? It's because uh, he liked his toy so much that he didn't want to put it out. And when the dog won't out a toy, he won't search anymore. So there's only two ways to get it out. You either beat them or you choke them. And that's what they did. So it's uh, it's just, it's totally unacceptable, but it is what it is, and I would be less than honest were I not to admit it. Yeah, of course, and that's I mean that's an important part of educating us here about this topic is to know that that's a common practice, you know. And some of these foreign contract dogs, like yeah, that just happens. That's part of their how they work. Our dogs that are with the major contract companies over here, companies like AMK9, for instance, uh, they do the right thing for their dogs. You know, they always bring them back. They have handlers that go and they work them themselves. So they're not handing off the dog to some unknown third party. It's some of the, uh, basically, it's some of the companies that work in the hotter, hotter countries, Iran, Iraq, North Africa, Bosnia, those areas that uh, can have issues. Gotcha. And is there like a therapy process for the dogs or do they get medication? What do you kind of do to help assist a dog that has developed one of these disorders? Some dogs do need to be medicated. Uh, not all of them though, and not permanently. Most of it can be mitigated with time. You have to just show them that you're worthy of their trust, that you're not going to hit them, that you love them, and that, uh, you know, they're okay. How do you do that with a dog? You just be present with the dog. You work with the dog. You make the dog part of your surroundings, and you let him or her know that she's a part of that, and it just takes time. My dog will never uh, stop protecting me. And I have to really be careful because of that. I was, he bit me the first two weeks I had him when a friend came to me in the park that I hadn't seen. And I hadn't really learned how to read his mannerisms that well. And he was laying down. Well, fine. So my friend who is, uh, is very hard of hearing came up to me and I told him, stop, don't come any closer because I knew maybe would, you know, we might get him. And what does he do? He reaches out to shake my hand. He didn't have his hearing aid. Up comes Jaws. I just turned, bam, took it. And my friend looks at me and said, did that dog just try to bite me? I said, yes, sir, he did. Did that dog bite you? Unfortunately, yes, he did. And I couldn't get mad at him because he did his job. But uh, dogs with patrol training require so much care and caution 
when they're outside. And I will tell you that most working dogs don't like other dogs. 95% of them don't like cats. So I'm lucky I have one that lives in harmony with a cat, but uh, he'd kill any other cat that came around. And he'd, you know, he was friends with our old Malinois, but he doesn't like other dogs as much as we've tried to integrate him. There's just some things that don't change. So we have to, we know the nature of our dogs. And before we adopt any of them, we will choose a family that has what it takes to accommodate that dog the best that can be handled. Yeah. Is part of that just that like these animals are trained not to work with other animals or they're never exposed to other animals? No, they're not. They're not. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? not exposed it's uh oh it's a big word to it i can't i can't remember it uh, you know basically mixing and mingling they, they just they don't do meet and greets that's about i'll dumb it down i can't remember my fancy word but we'll say they don't do mingles and meet and greets they work they go they go in their kennel and and there's a lot of back and forth you know between the fence a lot of dogs are kennel aggressive or they're crate aggressive. You know, you go up to the dog's crate and he's wants to eat you. And then you open the door and he's all wiggles and smiles and comes out. It's just a perceived threat that vanishes once it's open. Some of them though, unfortunately you open that door and they come after you. But uh, we know all of that before we will consider adopting a dog out. Yeah. I mean, it certainly sounds like there is a lot to consider. I had kind of anecdotally heard this study, and I don't know where I found it or how true it is, but when you're looking through, you know, candidates, I had heard that there is something about it helps in the bonding process to have these dogs that have PTSD as well as owners that have it, and they seem to, like, understand each other on some level. Is that true at all, or do you guys kind of screen that out? I'm going to say that does not truly have any grounding in facts that I have seen personally. I won't say it's not true because, you know, maybe they do. I don't have PTSD, so I can't judge. But I can say that uh, I have seen that happen. I have seen PTSD in dogs mimicking what I see in humans, either fear behavior or aggressive behavior. And they may or may not help each other out. They may only mix and make it worse. You know, it, it's, it's hard to say. I honestly can't answer that with any knowledge. No, of course, it's one of those that I had read and I was like, oh, that's kind of cool that you'd, you know, you kind of see and like, oh, I have that same kind of symptom. I get that. Yeah. You made me think of something when you said that. And that's a service dog, a dog that is designed to do something for someone that's disabled. And we're not talking PTSD. We're talking, you know, act, okay, and here I go. I'm going to get in trouble. I'm not going to say that PTSD isn't a disability. I'm saying that true service dogs provide some function for their owner, either seizure detection or help them lift this or move a door or get objects. It's not, they're not just sit down and let me be comfortable with you, emotional support animals. Um, there's, I'm sure there's, there's a case for those. I see a lot of that being grossly abused on our airlines these days. I will say patently 
that no retired working dog can be certified as a service dog. Don't try it. A lot of people want it, want it as a way to get their dog on the plane for free. No, don't do that. There's enough people that are going around the rules as it is. But you know, these dogs are retired. They need to relax. They need not to work. Now, if one of them happens to learn how to detect your chemical chains, it causes some sort of health reaction, fantastic. But, you know, we're not going to make them do that. That's just kind of an extra you didn't pay for. Yeah, that is one of those, like, there's services out there that charge tens of thousands of dollars to train very specialized dogs for those things. It's not just yeah. like, oh, yeah, I got this bomb dog, and I think he'll probably pick up my diabetes. Right. That's true. And, you know, you could probably teach them to do that, but they're old enough. You know, they've done their work. Let them, let them have the rest. The main thing that we want from our adopters, other than to fit the makeup of our dogs, and unfortunately... The majority of adopters have multiple pets, and that's a problem. I mean, they're, they're dog lovers, and that's wonderful, but when it comes to working dogs, it may be not so good. Uh, we also see a number of people that do not realize the cost of senior canine veterinary care, and we require that all the dogs that we adopt out have that. We don't want to hear, oh, sorry, boy, it's, uh, you know, the Budweiser you this month, and we're going with the Bud. I see that too much with other rescues, and it's sad. So we have some pretty stringent requirements on who adopts, who doesn't adopt. And they just basically, they have to be able to give the dog what they need in the environment the dog needs and have the time to spend with the dog that they spend their time with. Yeah, especially when you're like, we're going through all of this work to bring these dogs across oceans and continents and, you know, great distances to find these you know, hopefully the family they get to retire with, you know, and spend out their, their last years, like, comfortably. You don't want to hear that going to somebody who's like, oh, well, I didn't know that old dogs had medical bills. Yeah, most of the, I would say, we, probably one out of 100 dogs gets returned to us for an incompatibility, an incompatibility reason. Uh, otherwise, it's always a good fit uh, our uh, adoption team, Blair Baker, uh, she's very good at her screening, and she does great. So we're happy to have her with us. Yeah, and one out of 100 is, I mean, that's a very, very good success rate. I think so. To say, like, yeah, 99% of all of the work we do has absolutely no return or any of that. Like, that's great. We also don't waste donors' money. 92%, a little over 92% of every dollar given this last year went to the work. We're, we're almost a little too nonprofit as there was not enough um, money at the end of the month or there was too much month at the end of the money back last November. And I had to do something rare, which is get on Facebook and beg for money. We don't, we don't like to do that. We like for people to give because they value our work and not because someone, uh, I won't ever use guilt, but I will ask strongly and I will say, you want these dogs to come home? You know, they're not going to be able to come home if you don't help us bring them home. But in the process of that, we spend the majority of their uh, donation to do just that. We don't fly first class. We don't sit in leather chairs. We don't have a 
huge central office that we gravitate around. These ladies that run this thing are driving vans, sleeping in roadside parks at night and literally running them no sleep. I've had to tell them both. You need to chill out. You're not doing anything for two weeks. Don't ask me for money. I'm going to say no, just rest. And of course they always don't listen to me and they do it anyway, but that's that. But it was worth a shot. You gave it your. Sure. I, I, I got my chance to scold them for overwork and their choices in their choice. So when people do donate, is there a system where they like, they go to, they can give once they can do some kind of like yeah. a monthly. Yes. Uh, the easiest way to do that. Our website is mission, the letter K, the number nine, the word rescue.org. That's mission canine rescue.org. They'll see donate stuck in there. They can give once they can give on a recurring basis. Uh, they can also donate through Facebook if they prefer, although we would actually rather be able to know directly who gives so we can say thank you. We don't always get the names of the people that give to us on Facebook, so it's hard to acknowledge their appreciation uh, for our work. We have, we've been very fortunate on social media. We have just on Facebook alone over 117,000 very engaged fans on our page. It helps us to get our work out to get funds when we need it. And uh, it's been good overall. I find Twitter to be patently worthless for our purposes anyway. And uh, Instagram is good for pictures, but not much for telling stories. And we have a story that needs to be told. So we use it and TikTok. Eh, I won't even get into the whole TikTok thing. I just don't think it's for us. Although we had one video in there, they got 2.43 million views. But didn't raise a dime. Yeah, that's unfortunate. I mean, it seems like you've kind of found the service that works for you. And I'm glad to hear that you've got, you know, a healthy audience that is building up and kind of there to hear the story and spread the word and support you in some way. Yeah. One thing you haven't asked me is why the military doesn't automatically send a dog home for overseas, from overseas when they retire. And a lot of people just assume that the military does that. Again, this gets back to the assets thinking rather than soldier thinking. In 2016, President Obama signed a portion of the National Defense Authorization Act that included within it a clause that any military working dog retired outside of the continental United States would receive a trip back to their last U.S. kennel. The military didn't implement it, and they got around it by saying that these foreign sites, foreign operating bases were technically U.S. soil. And so that's how they kept not doing it. Recently, they have been cooperating with us more. We've had some dogs sent home on military rotator flights from uh, Japan. Saved us one, saved us over $12,000. We still have the cost of stateside transport to deal with because, for instance, they came to Coronado Island Naval Air Station that's down in San Diego, California. And we still had to get them from there and then transport them by van to wherever they were going to, Arkansas or North Carolina. I don't remember to their handlers. So there's still costs the military doesn't pick up. And unfortunately, for military dogs, for any working dog, there is no health care in retirement. And when we get 
when we make requests for health care for dogs, we get a lot of thoughts and prayers. There are people that are think uh, that think veterinarians should and will do it for free, and they won't. They have businesses to run. They do not owe us any debt because we bring these dogs home. You know, they have to pay their bills. Um, and so we we find that the public wants very much the dogs to come home from a bad situation overseas, but then half of that public doesn't really care when it's time to get, the, get to the vet to take care of an aggressive cancer that's shown up that is treatable. So we wish that they would consider all aspects of their, uh, of their work and care, not just the getting them home part. Okay, that was my tangent. I'm going to shut up now. No, I think that's a very good tangent to take because, you know, like you said, not everyone's bringing these dogs home, even the ones that work here with Americans, like they're not coming back to America. And that transport alone, like you said, is very expensive doing this oh, yeah. inside the U.S. like as another transportation fee. There's a cost of that. And then all the way back to like aging dogs need medical care. That's just a thing. Just like humans, we need medical care. And they don't have, you know, the Social Security or Medicare that we do. Someone asked me not too long ago, he said, Bob, what does it cost Mission Canine to do its mission every week? That number is about $24,000. That includes transportation, gas, vans, personnel, kennel, uh, dog food, you know, everything related to the operation of our organization. So basically, it's close to $100,000 a month just to do basics. And then when you get in with the big transports, we easily spend, you know, that plus more. You know, we're going one point, I think it was 1.7 million was what we did in 2021. I would like to see us get up to the $3 million mark that way we can do more work and we can expand our facility. We are, we're capped right now with our capacity. And the more people find out about us, the more people are trying to give dogs to us. And there comes a point where we have to say, no, we can't take it. And we've told some of the police departments, you need to create sanctuaries for these dogs. You need to create funding. And uh, we don't have the money. We don't have the time. Well, I'm sorry. Uh, they need to be forward thinking in the care of their animals. Yeah, you're like, find the time, find the money, because this is your, you know, canine officer. They deserve the same kind of treatment your other officers have. Whereas, you know, when you're rescuing these, you know, foreign contracted dogs, like, their country may not take good care of them like the U.S. should for ours. No, well, the, well, the problem is most of the time the contractor that brought them over there has gone broke. And so we're over there basically digging them out of the ashes. So how do you go about, if someone was out there, obviously, like, we gave it that earlier segment, like, please go donate, especially go to the website. If you're going to go on Facebook, let them know that you're doing it, donate. How does someone go about applying to be a home for one of these canines? Uh, they can go to our website, again, missioncaninerescue.org. Oh, by the way, on Facebook, we're just Mission Canine. We have an adoption application that is available on our website, just on the top menu, it lists all the requirements and it will take them through a multi-page uh, adoption app that we uh, use petstablished.com uh, to work with. So they're able to do that, then our coordinators will review it. 
uh, kind of see if there are dogs that are a match and then they will reach out to them when there are. Now, it can take months sometimes. We don't, we're not saying, hi, how you doing? We don't have a dog to shut for you every week. We will reply when we have a dog for you because to do more requires more staff and I don't want to waste money that I could be spending on dogs. So we hope people will understand that this takes time and that they, their application was received and we will consider them. Yeah. You're like, we hear you. We're busy. We're trying to, you know, run as lean as possible so that we can spend it in ways that are meaningful. I was going to say, I have a TV producer that's been trying to get a hold of me for two days. Want to talk about raising money for us. I haven't had time to call him. So it just, it's not just, we're just busy. So I call him back today and hopefully work on that. But anyway, go ahead with your thoughts, sir. Yeah. Is there kind of a couple things, like if people are, are thinking like, oh, I could go over there and put in an application for this. Is there a couple other than like, don't have other pets? A couple of things where you're like, these are either must-haves or must-not-haves. Don't don't uh, be away from your house all day, every day. If you're a couple and you're both working and you're gone from seven to six every day, don't apply to adopt a dog. That dog's not going to be happy with you and the dog may damage your property because he's bored. And we also don't want that dog sitting in a crate inside. If your idea of a dog is to have that dog live outside, don't apply to adopt. We want our dogs to be part of the family. If you can't afford the cost of vet care, don't adopt. We won't adopt unless you can afford vet care. And we have ways of finding out who can and who can't. And we use those tools at our disposal to make sure that we get the best adopters possible. Absolutely. And no one should be surprised by that. Like if you're looking to take this on, like be, expect to be looked at, you know, with a bit of scrutiny because this right. is a big we, we have to. Yeah, we have to. Well, this has been great. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, one more time, tell everyone where they can go, especially to donate or what they can share to kind of get the word out about this. Okay, uh, if you want to donate, go to missionk9rescue.org. And if you want to see what's going on, some of our uh, new dogs in our care, you can go to our Facebook page, which is just Mission K9 on Facebook. And that's where you can do it. Awesome. Well, I hope people do. We round up some donations. We get some more eyes on, you know, and just kind of spread the word about this because it's a very important mission. I'm very glad, you know, you guys are doing it. Well, nothing on this podcast today was dumb at all. So you may be just dumb enough, but it was all good questions and hopefully some productive responsive answers that will make people think and possibly reconsider their ideas about what happens to dogs when they're retired. And I very much appreciate your time. Do you feel more educated after listening to this episode of the Just Dumb Enough podcast? If you enjoy the episode, please take a brief moment to rate the show five stars on iTunes, Spotify, or Audible. If you really like what I'm doing here, remember to subscribe for two new episodes every single week of the year, and check out the over 100 episode backlog. Let me know what you'd like to hear next by reaching out and emailing me, dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com or by sending a message to me on any of the show pages like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or wherever else you find me. I'm always looking for new topics, guest ideas, and questions from the audience. That's it for this week. Enjoy your weekend, 
and I'll see you all back here on Monday to talk about psychedelics. Bye bye.